I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking to Miriam Taves, the author of Women Talking, which is out now from Bloomsbury. You can find a complete transcript and a list of all the books mentioned in today's episode linked in our show notes. And don't forget to review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I feel like, Kendra, this interview marks off a bucket list item for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Yes. I fell in love hard and fast for Miriam Taves when I read All My Puny Sorrows, and then even more so with Women Talking. And so Jacqueline and I went and found all of her books in paperback in the matching Canadian editions because we're that extra, but also very much in love. And they actually are downstairs as a display talking piece in my living room. <laughs> and then they proceeded to double team me into abandoning my TBR and picking this one up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we are so excited to talk to Miriam Taves today about, about Women Talking, which is her latest novel, which came out this past spring. Oh, it, it is fabulous. So Miriam Taves has written so many other novels. She's a very prolific writer. Um, she is author of six previous best-selling novels, All My Puny Sorrows, Summer of My Amazing Luck, A Boy of Good Breeding, A Complicated Kindness, The Flying Troutmans, and Irma Voth, and one work of nonfiction, Swing Low, A Life. She is the winner of the Governor's General Award for Fiction, the Liebers Award for Fiction of Book of the Year, the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, and the Writers Trust Angle Finley Award. Uh, she lives in Toronto. And also, as a side note for American listeners, Counterpoint recently released uh, a reissuing of a lot of her novels, and they have beautiful matching covers because we have priorities here. And so as a note today, this book is about um, a series of sexual assaults that happen in a Mennonite community. So just a content warning if you're listening in the car uh, with uh, small ears, you may not want to hear a um, discussion of that. It's kept to very much a minimum, but it is mentioned that it does happen. So just FYI, as we head into our conversation today. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Miriam Taves. Uh, well, Miriam, we are so, so thrilled to talk to you today about your uh, latest book. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I feel like we have been, Kendra and I have been talking about this book for so long. <laughs> she read it first in typical fashion with us and texted me immediately and was like, stop what you're doing and read Woman Talking. I promise you won't be disappointed. So um, <laughs> we are super excited to get to talk about it today. I fell fast and hard for this novel, and I read it in one day. Uh, another co-host, Jacqueline, she and I buddy read it together. We just sat there in a book coma, and we're like, now what do we do with our lives? Now the book is over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, th I mean, thanks. <laughs> That's really so cool. I, I appreciate hearing that. I'm glad that it's had that impact or effect, effect on you. I've never heard the expression book coma before, but um, yeah, I think I might start using that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the book we're talking about today is Women Talking. It's in the introduction, um, you have an author's note, and um, it says it's based on true events. And we start out the book, and these women in the community have to respond to a series of 
violence that's happened in their community. Um, so who are these women and what is the decision that they're having to make? Well, I mean, the, the true story, the, the real women are, are um, women who are from the the Manitoba colony, actually. In my book, I, I call it the Malachna colony, and Malachna is the name of the first Mennonite community in Russia, where all of us Mennonites, a group of Mennonites anyway, came from, and it, that includes the Mennonites in Bolivia. But so the women in, in the book are... Um, living in a very, as they are in real life, in an ultra-conservative Mennonite colony, a closed colony in Bolivia. In the book, it's not stated specifically where the colony is, but in real life, as they say, it's in Bolivia. It's the Manitoba colony in Bolivia, and it's named after Manitoba, the province here in Canada, where I'm from and where the Mennonites who live there originally migrated from. So it's a very isolated, remote colony these are, like I said, very conservative, ultra-conservative, fundamentalist, authoritarian, patriarchal cultures, and um, where where the you know roles for men and women are, are very clear. And essentially, the women are prisoners, really, within these communities. They don't speak the language of the country that they're in. They only speak the Mennonite language, which is an unwritten language. They're not educated. They're illiterate. They don't leave the colonies unless they're accompanied by men. They're virtual prisoners within these communities. And these communities are self-governed, self-policed. So when these types of attacks, um, these rapes or, or whatever it is, any type of violence, when they, when they occur, there's no recourse for the women, for anybody, you know, because essentially, I mean, and in this case, the women weren't believed. Then when it finally, you know, was revealed and, and the elders understood what had happened to them and believed them or claimed to, um, you know, they were simply told to forget about it, to forgive and to, um, you know, and, and that, of course, that they were basically, you know, had been responsible for the attacks, which I guess is something that, you know, we women hear often in every type of society. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. And there's so many things about this story that are unfortunately are very relevant to today's culture or modern society. Instead of telling a nonfiction story, you chose to fictionalize this story. So what made you decide to tell the story in that particular way? And what does fiction bring to it that a nonfiction account of this might not have? Yeah, it's an imagined response to the rape. I decided, I mean, I thought about different ways of getting into the story or telling the story, I realized that I didn't want to reenact or recreate the rape. That seemed to me like a sort of extension of, of the violence, like re-violating the women in a sense. And, and what I was more interested in was their response, their collective response um, and, and what they would do. And, the, and I wanted to create the urgency of that decision making process and, and just the various questions. I had so many questions, you know, about, about this. How could this have happened? I mean, this, these are, this is my community. I'm a Mennonite. I, I'm familiar with these patriarchal authoritarian communities having grown up in one. And, you know, and I, and so I had questions. I had some big, I wouldn't say answers because that's not the job of a novelist, but, you know, I mean, I could kind of see, I wasn't surprised when I heard about the rapes. Um, I was horrified like everybody, but I, but I wasn't surprised. And I don't think any Mennonites growing up in these types of communities would be too surprised either. But I mean, I am a fiction writer. So, you know, for me to fictionalize something 
um, is a, is a kind of natural thing for me to, for me to do where I'm most comfortable. But I also feel that, you know, fiction lends itself to a certain kind of truth telling that maybe, you know, not nonfiction doesn't necessarily, you know, I wanted to have this kind of philosophical conversation discussion, you know, between the women and, you know, and I guess in order to do that, I needed to, to fictionalize it. When I think about this book and when I pitch it to people, I often think, have you ever seen 12 Angry Men, uh, the play or the movie or whatever? And it's, you know, it's a room and a bunch of dudes and they're talking, right? And they have to make a decision. And so I think about women talking and in a lot of sense, it's similar in a way where they're in this room and they're having to make this choice. Um, and then how they're going to respond to these events while the men are off in town and they have this opportunity. You just mentioned that they talk about philosophy and they also talk about theology. Um, did you plan to structure this book this way as a basically an extended conversation over the course of a few days? How did that structure kind of come to be? Yeah, I did plan eventually when I when I started, you know, seriously thinking about how I was going to do it. I did. I, I loved the idea of uh, a conversation. You know, again, I, I, I didn't want to, you know, reenact the crimes. And I like the idea of, of women talking, basically, especially since, you know, these women are so silenced and so without a voice, without agency, without any ability to control their own lives. And I'm being, you know, from birth fed the scripture and so-called wisdom being handed down to them by the elders who are all male, et cetera, et cetera. And so to give these women a, a type of voice then within the kind of structure of conversation was something that it appealed to me, it, you know, in terms of it being a sort of subversion of what these women were used to. Also, the idea of the women be, being, you know, the philosophers and the planners and giving them that that type of agency. Yeah, it was a form that I, that I don't normally, that I've never used before in any of my books. And it was challenging, you know, it was for, to keep the voices of the women distinct one from the other. And I think that sometimes, they, you know, they do kind of, it's hard to maybe, or a little bit difficult to know, you know, who's talking now or, and, and in a sense that was okay with me because, and in, a little bit intentional because, you know, this is a collective community um, and they kind of, function as one voice. I mean, certainly there's a divide between the men and the women, but the women themselves, their lives are so similar. They're forced, expected to, you know, have babies, take care of babies, take care of the men, cook, clean, et cetera, and farm too. But so collectively for them to kind of have one voice sort of like as a chorus within this conversation made sense to me. And then of course, with a tried to, to distinguish the, the characters so that, that you would, the readers would know who was, who was talking and having the different generations of women helped with that too. The teenagers and then the younger women, mothers, and then the grandmothers. One of my favorite things about the story was how, like, we see these women's thought processes and how they kind of unfold in this conversation and how their different voices, like, clash and, and they're part of their discussion. And, you know, as Kendra and I were talking after we read this book, like, we both come from conservative religious communities ourselves, and so we definitely understand, like, the, some of the arguments that these women were making or the things that they were talking about or some of the things you just mentioned about expectations and gender roles and things like that. Was this something that just kind of came out of the discussion as the women were talking or were these topics things that you wanted to specifically address before you set out to write the novel? 
I think it was kind of more of an organic thing. You know, I think at the beginning I, I knew who the women would be. That That's kind of very important to me anyway when I start writing a book to just to know, to really, really know who my characters are and what the situation is basically. And then, you know, and then try to be as true to that as I, as I can in dialogue and in, in their motivation and in how they feel, how they express themselves and what they ultimately do. You know, given the circumstances or what they were thinking that they were planning, they had they have three options, I guess, to leave the community, stay and fight, or to do nothing. And all three of those, you know, there are high stakes attached to each of those decisions, and none of them come lightly, of course. And so just given, so given that, so that kind of acted as a touchstone that I could go back to in terms of then how their, what their conversation would be. So it was a little bit organic at the beginning, but then, you know, as I got further and further into their discussions, it became a little bit more clear, you know, in terms of what I needed to have them talk about and what things they needed to mention, like for instance, or to think about, you know, in their, in their process of making a decision, you know, like for instance, what about, what about boys of a certain age? You know, their sons and brothers of a certain age, young teenage males, you know, were they, do they pose a a threat, you know, and how, how could that possibly be? How could they leave them behind? You know, like I said, I mean, high stake decisions, heartbreaking and terrifying. They don't even know. I mean, they don't know the world outside the colony. So all of these, those types of things, you know, like the kind of circumstances of their lives, I knew that I had to bring into their discussion. And there's such a wide range of thoughts and opinions and ideas. Like you've mentioned, the voices of the different uh, women are are so distinct. And they go back and forth about theology and philosophy for a very long time. And I think that there's this, you know, there's this stereotype that conservative women live the way they do because they're ignorant or they're not educated. Even though they're illiterate, they're obviously very, very intelligent. Has there been a lot of surprise that you've read our, our experience when talking about this book, about how these women characters are, I mean, obviously so so intelligent. Were you consciously trying to push back against that stereotype as well? You know, I mean, group, groups like this, these sects, or you could even describe them as cult, it's easy to think of them almost as non-human. You know, when you, when you see them, perhaps, you know, they come to town for some reason, and you see these, these groups of, you know, conservative religious people all wearing the same clothes, the uniform, and, and these roles, you know, and, and I think the tendency, you know, is to sort of go, oh, you know, were these religious nuts and then they go away into these remote places and you kind of forget about them and and it's almost like they don't really exist and and even if they do exist you know in your in your mind or as you contemplate them you know like as though they're not quite the same as us and in many ways they're not but in so many ways they are because they're human of course and so that was something that I wanted to yeah I did I was conscious of that you know I wanted to get that across and I wanted also I modeled these women if that's the right word, after women that I know, like my two families, my own, my closest friend's family, and she, she's a Mennonite from the same community, and my own family, so sisters and aunts and mothers and grandmothers, et cetera, daughters. And in that way, I was able to sort of convey their humanity and, like you say, their intelligence, their ability to reason, their ability to think, which is something that they want to do. They want to be able to think. You know, they want the right to think. They want to think for themselves. And that was my experience too, growing up in my own community, even though we, 
my my community was not as ultra conservative, although the rules were, the expectations of women were, but some of the the kind of surface details were were different. Like we didn't dress the same with long, long dresses and covering our hair all the time, although some of us did. And we uh, we were we were educated. Girls were educated as well to a certain point. I mean, higher education was frowned on, but so there were some differences. But essentially, I mean, I grew up. With these women, men and boys were kind of so separate from us. You know, the the women and the girls were the ones that I knew intimately and spent my life listening to and sort of really noticing that subversive, in a way, language and the joking, the laughter, the arguing, you know, even, and I mean, the snarkiness too, you know, just the well, just fully rounded women that were, when the men were around, you know, suddenly became so submissive and quiet and servile. And it was such a shock to me growing up, knowing what I knew of women in terms of, you know, their own personalities, their intellects, their humor, their passion and their subversiveness, I guess, is that thing that I keep going back to. That was so, such a strong memory for me. Which that really definitely comes through in the women's conversations and how they interact with each other, which is why I thought it was so interesting that like the narrator of the story is actually a man named August who has recently returned to the community after living in exile for a long time and um, his both of his parents are dead we come to find out and they've been excommunicated from the community so could you talk to us a little bit about August and who he is and the role that he has in this story August is also you know a kind of marginalized character within the community even though he is male and so because he is male he does enjoy a few more privileges than than the women even though not very many more he's mocked he's derided he's not thought of as fully male really as a real man by the other men in the, in the community he said his, his parents have been excommunicated for various you know ridiculous reasons He's an outsider, he's marginalized, he's disenfranchised, he's without a voice really like the women uh, in a sense, but he does know how to read and write because he's male. And the, again, these roles have, have been subverted within within the lost. The women are, the, like you say, the theologians, the philosophers, the planners, you know, the ones who are acting, who are thinking, and, and he's been asked by the women, by one of the women, Ona, to, to take these minutes, and only as an act of compassion on Ona's part, because Ona senses that August is despairing, is in fact suicidal, and so as an act of compassion and, and friendship, she says to him, August, you know, basically just come with us. You'll be safe with us in the loft. Just come with us women. And here, we'll give you this task, this kind of basically irrelevant task. Um, these minutes don't mean anything to the women. They can't read them. The hope is that they'll go on to write their own stories, create their own map, as it were, metaphorically. And August is there, you know, as the kind of, you know, Male, not as you know, an all man kind of thing, but as as a kind of male representative, you know, he's there to listen and to learn and to bear witness, and of course to take the minutes. And he comes with some outside experience as well, because, like you said, he was excommunicated. He and his family excommunicated. He lived in London, studied at university, and so that external, I guess, kind of sort of occupies that liminal space between the inside, the closedness of the colony and the outside world. And then so in the narrative, he can bring in some kind of what I thought was necessary, like breathers in a sense from the 
anecdotes, few opinions of his own ideas, notions, thoughts that he has. He was is reluctant to express them because, of course, you know, it's not his job to, to be saying anything. You know, it's his job to take the minutes and to record what women are saying. But I thought that it, just in terms of the narrative, it offered the reader kind of a, a breather from the intensity, like in the, the sort of like, ooh, you know, like claustrophobic kind of intensity of their of their conversation, you know, and that he can read. So there, you know, there are a bunch of reasons for August. And we'll be back with more of this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode of Reading Women is Novellic. Novellic is an app for creating, finding, joining, and managing book clubs. You can meet new friends who share your reading tastes, and through your book club, find the perfect next books to read. There are over a thousand book clubs to join from across different genres and include feminist book clubs, LGBTQ plus book clubs, YA book clubs, romance book clubs, sci-fi and fantasy clubs, and loads of other genres. Book club members can vote on what they want to read and have discussions with other club members and organize meetups and add books to the club's TBR. That's really cool feature. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is pretty cool. Yeah. Novellic users have read and recommended over 10,000 books to date, and they make their own recommendations as well, um, both in their app and in their monthly newsletter. So thanks so much to Novellic for this sponsoring this episode of Reading Women, and you can find all of their information in our show notes. I found August so interesting because like you said it's like he's neither fully male in this community and he's neither female it's like he doesn't have a place and throughout the narrative different characters also come in that illustrate that they also don't have a place in this patriarchal structure whether they have um, some mental disabilities or maybe they're older or different things and the women also have those conversations like who do we bring and different things like that but August in particular I felt was almost like a bridge for the reader he's kind of sitting in between, like between both worlds. And it gives the reader a filter to help understand what's going on. Because I imagine most of the people reading this book, you know, they're not from this community. And so there's a lot to learn. And August kind of is that bridge in that way. Um, and, and he was very helpful in some instances to learn more about the culture and about the, the world building, as it were. Yeah, exactly. And he's a compassionate man, you know, he's a, he's a good guy. And, and I guess I felt too that given the circumstances, given the horrific, the monstrousness, monstrosity, I guess is the word, of the, of these acts and, you know, committed by the men, the local men, um, Mennonite men in their community, you know, it was necessary for me anyway, to have a man like August, somebody like, you know, there, there's some hope there. I felt I needed him to be a person, a man to be able to listen and to learn and to pass that learning on. I mean, he's a teacher, you know, the, the things that he learns from the women when he is in the loft with them. And so, you know, he's in this kind of in a submissive role, learning from the women and, and, you know, but using that information in the same way that the women have learned from the men, you know, for better, for worse, men are using to inform their decisions. So we've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but as these women are discussing, like, whether they should stay and fight or do nothing or leave, there are some pretty heated discussions that come up, especially about leaving the men in the family, you know, especially the younger sons. And there's this one boy who has some learning disabilities. And I mean, it makes sense, but I think it's something that people don't often think about. And I think that we think too, 
I don't know, it's so easy to to judge people for the decisions that they make. Why did you want to kind of, or what made you decide to kind of complicate the story and show that it wasn't as cut and dry as maybe we might think as outsiders? Yeah, uh, that's true. I mean, the, the women are making their decision, you know, within the context of their faith, which is very important to them. It's not something that they're not like secular Mennonites like myself, a disenfranchised Mennonite, Mennonite where I can say, okay, you know, everything that I learned, you know, this religious education, I can, I can argue with, I can, I cannot believe, I can turn my back on. I, that's not where where they're at. In a sense, you know, they're going through this. They're reclaiming the the better parts of the scripture. You know, the the parts of the scriptures that are hopeful, that are inclusive, um, that are genuinely loving. I don't know if it's August. I can't quite remember. You know, who who says? You know, at the end. I mean, they're they're creating their their own new religion, which of course is a completely radical, revolutionary, subversive thing for any Mennonite woman to claim. And they don't. You know, August says it for them. They they the women themselves would never say, oh, they laugh about this too and talk about it too. You know, we're not revolutionaries. We're not insubordinate. This isn't an uprising. Or, you know, and and they want they want no violence. The Mennonite tenet of pacifism, for instance, which is one of the central tenets of faith, there is very important to them. They, you know, circle around this argument, okay, yeah, we're pacifists, you know, we are pacifists. So therefore, you know, our actions will be this, this, and this based on that. Yeah, so I think it is easy, like you were saying, you know, for a lot of us, and myself included, to say, like, just get the heck out of there. Like, just forget it. Just leave, you know, or or, or be violent. I mean, if violence is required almost, you know, to fight this. I mean, you know, Salome, one of the characters, takes a scythe and attacks one of the guys. But for the most part, I mean, their faith and the, the tenets of their faith, pastorism, are, are very, very important to them, which was a challenge, too, for me to write, you know, because... Although that's how I grew up. My mother, I live with my mother. My mother lives with us. Um, you know, she still is a devout Mennonite, attends a, a Mennonite church, like a liberal, you know, a progressive Mennonite church, but in a Mennonite church nevertheless. And so it's easy for me to kind of talk with her and tap into that and to remember that, that these women are, again, like I say, operating out from, from their faith and, and making decisions based on their faith, but also on the idea that perhaps they have been sold a bill of goods when it comes to the interpretation of the Bible, which, of course, is only something that they've been given by the elders, the male elders, and that interpretation interpretation is, of course, used to oppress them and to keep them silent and obedient. And I think that's something that comes around and around again is that these women of faith are making their own decisions and they might not make the same decisions that we as readers might make, but it's their right to make their decision and within the context of their own story. And I really, I found it very thought provoking to kind of go along that thought journey with them to see the different conversations about pacifism, about, you know, well, protecting our, our child, if we're fighting to protect our child from something, is that actually violence, you know, in that way? And there's those conversations back and forth. And I'm going to try to ask this question without giving away the ending because <laughs> we don't want to do spoilers, but I found the book overall incredibly hopeful, which was which was lovely because I feel like sometimes when we hear these stories, they just don't end well and there isn't hope in the end. But this one I felt, while it didn't tie up everything perfectly in a bow, it was very hopeful. And whatever happens, these women have their voice and they are, have made this decision for themselves, whatever the decision might be. Um, and it is it guts you a little bit. But I wanted to ask you, this is based on on real events. And is this an ending that you wanted to give these women as part of this fictional response? Um, is this hope that 
you wish for them that might not happen in reality? Um, what was your own approach to this kind of ending? Yeah, in a sense, you know, I know so many women, myself included, who've left these communities and it's so difficult. You know, that's the world that you know, and it's not all bad. They're the people that you love, maybe also fear or hate or whatever it is. I mean, it's the world that you know, and it's very, very difficult to leave because when you leave, it's quite impossible to go back. You know, generally one would be, I was excommunicated and, and, you know, the people that I know who have left the communities in a painful way have also been. And on the one hand, yes, I think, yes, free yourselves, leave, take control. And it's kind of a fantasy, you know, but the thing is the very paternalistic thing to just even think, let alone kind of walk into one of these communities and say, you know, you're not living the way you should be living. You're not emancipated women. You're not free women. You're not, you know, you're you're, um, brainwashed and you need to live the way I live, for instance, you know, in a secular fashion, you know, get educated, all of these things. It's, It's incredibly arrogant and paternalistic to even think that. So I wouldn't say that, you know, this is what I think those women should do. But on the other hand, I do know through the Mennonite grapevine that a lot of the women who who are from that community and from other communities where similar things are going on, I mean, the rates of domestic violence and, and sexual violence in these communities are very, very high, are leaving. And, and it's so painful, but they're leaving and there are communities all over the place, you know, where the ones on the outside, the ones who already left are helping the ones who are leaving. Some of the women involved actually are, are getting, being granted asylum, at least here in Canada, I don't know about the U.S., because, exactly because of these the circumstances in, the, in these colonies. That's amazing to me, you know, to get asylum. Uh, and part of it is because they're self-policed and they have nowhere to go and they have no one to talk to and they have no way of dealing with any of the crimes that happen to them. I, I realize that I'm not really answering your question, but it's a kind of a yes and no answer. You you know, I wouldn't want to presume to say that this is the only way of dealing with or approaching these these kinds of things. I mean, the the most important thing, the real fantasy would be for there to be a collective, you know, understanding of the root causes of why these types of things happen. And if you look at, you know, the authoritarianism, the paternalism, the the interpretation of the scripture, the sort of everything sanctified by God, and then, you know, and then of course the systemic abuse of the women and the dehumanization of the women and the, you know, entitlement of the men, and then you, boom, you can see exactly how these things happen. But how does that kind of understanding, you know, what do you do, like set up little workshops? And so I think the first thing that might have to happen is a discussion, you know, or I don't know, I don't know, but it's painful. Like it's terribly painful. The whole, the whole idea. I mean, you know, thinking about the women who are trapped in these communities, thinking about the women who I think may be trapped in these communities who don't, they themselves feel like they're trapped in these communities. You know, it's, it's complex. When I first started writing the book or first started thinking about the book, I thought, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to have this big revenge thing. You know, the women just go crazy on these guys, (laughs) you know, whatever. I mean, that was, you know, and and that was like, that was stupid. You know, that was like a completely stupid emotional response. And this was right after I'd heard about the, the rapes, you know, because that's not what would happen. And that's not what should happen. You know, violence creates more violence, you know, and, and so does revenge. And it just didn't, didn't make any sense given this, you know, the context of this, of this community. And I feel like their decisions and the discussions that they make, as you've been talking about, definitely fit for what they would decide. Like they are 
essentially making the decision. And I think that's so important for like just circling back to the you know title is women talking, the freedom to make your own decisions, not having someone come in and say, oh, you have to live this way, but they're making their own choices. And I, I think that really fits. As we mentioned, this is your fictional response to, to real events. Um, has there been any other responses in in arts or maybe pieces written by other Mennonites? There have been so many pieces written by Mennonites about what happened in Bolivia and what continues to happen. Apparently, the rumor is that the attacks, the rapes are still happening, even though the original perpetrators, the alleged perpetrators are behind bars in, in Santa Cruz. So it's very confusing. It's hard to get a, a lot of the facts because, of course, um, outsiders are not welcome. And people aren't talking about it. And, you know, the women the women didn't testify. Men testified on, on their behalf, their fathers, their brothers, you know, when it finally did go to trial. And, and so I know, again, through this Mennonite grapevine, you know, and I do readings all over the place and travel, there are almost always at every single one, you know, some Mennonites who are there who know about um, the story. Some of them who have details, of, you know, maybe about, oh, a sister or a, an aunt or, or a cousin, you know, managed to leave either left alone or with her kids or with her whole family because, you know, there would be a lot of husbands and fathers who, who want to leave as well. Yeah, so, you know, there, there are little stories coming out here and there, but then there are also stories of, you know, the women who now, after all of these years, women from the community who, who were young when they were attacked, the victims of these rapes who are saying, no, 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 we want the men back now. We, you know, let them go. They need to come home now, essentially, to be able to forgive them. You know, I mean, the, this pressure to forgive in order to be allowed, welcomed, you know, received uh, into heaven, of course, is, is very, very strong and as ludicrous and, you know, ridiculous as that sounds to so many of us, you know, that is a very, very strong, strong motivation for a lot of these people in these types of colonies. So there, yeah, there are different, different things are, are happening, but essentially what remains the same is that these Mennonite colonies, the closed colonies, what they'll do is when there's too much heat, uh, if you want to call it from the outside world, and pressure or, or internally, um, you know, we'll sort of pack up and move, you know, to a place that's even more remote. So, and this is the history of the Mennonites, this kind of migration, this kind of constant movement to a place where they're given religious freedom by a government saying, we'll let you do your own thing. You know, you'll farm, you'll contribute to the economy, you're, you know, you'll stay out of trouble, you'll just sort of exist out there in the middle of nowhere and not cause any trouble and you can educate your kids or not. We don't care what you do. Just farm <laughs> and, and, and occupy this space, <laughs> you know, uh, populate this country or whatever it is. A lot of these governments are complicit and responsible as well. And the Mennonite colonies, the ultra-conservative colonies will go to where they can get this kind of deal. Well, I think that's such a thoughtful response to everything that you talk about in your book, which is so just a lot to think about. And, you know, we're still thinking about it over here. And I'm sure that we could spend a lot more time just unpacking everything that's in this this novel. But Kendra and I wanted to ask you before we let you go, we're always interested in finding new Canadian writers because for some reason over here in the States, they're really hard to identify. Um, so who are some Canadian women writers that you would recommend to our listeners? And these can be newer ones or older ones or even just your favorites. 
Well, have you heard of Margaret Atwood? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Who hasn't? Yes. No, I know. Is she yeah, American? <laughs> I know she will soon be claimed by Americans, <laughs> but 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 um, yeah, no. But but I'm I'm thinking of one in particular. Her name is Nicole Brassard, and um, she's from New Brunswick. She's an old. She's you know older. I mean, I think she's in her seventies. She just writes beautifully. She's really kind of chronically under the radar, as they say. People here know about her, but not in the mainstream, really. So she's somebody I would really recommend strong. I mean, feminist, poet, novelist, essayist. Joan Joan Thomas is is a writer uh, actually from Winnipeg, my not hometown because my hometown was, you know, a Mennonite community, but Winnipeg is where I spent most of my adult life. She's recently written a book called Five Wives. She's a beautiful writer. You know, Marina Endicott, um, Lynn Cody, these are other, you know, Canadian Canadian writers. Yeah, we recently featured uh, Tracy Lindbergh on the podcast. Okay, yeah, amazing writer. Um, and we were we were at Book Expo, and a Canadian publisher told us like the dismal stats about how the books published in Canada only what was it between twenty and thirty percent are actually Canadian. But yes, there I, I know it's so hard. I mean, you know, the the rest of the world. I mean, you know, Canada is kind of a sort of like, what? Is that really there? Is it really a place? I think it's kind of, you know, <laughs> overlooked, you know, which is okay. It's kind of interesting to be in a place that's overlooked. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of stuff happening here. But it's hard. It's so hard to get people from not here interested. But then also Canadians themselves, like you say, you know, Canadians are buying mostly American stuff, too. Well, thank you so much, Miriam, for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about women talking. We really enjoyed getting to chat with you about it because we've talked about it so much amongst ourselves. So thank you, you so you much. Are, you are so welcome. And I really, really appreciate you guys talking to me and your enthusiasm for the book and your comments and your smart, smart questions and everything. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We'd like to thank Miriam Taze for talking to us about her novel, Women Talking, which is out now from Bloomsbury. You can find Miriam on her publisher's website, bloomsbury.com. And of course, all of Miriam's information will be linked in our show notes. We'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon.